This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And here's the question for today. Do you feel financially better off this year than you did last year? My answer is a resounding no. I do not feel better about my financial situation than I did a year ago, largely due to cost of housing in my area of Madison, Wisconsin. Many places require you to have triple income compared to what the rent is. So if rent was 1000 you need to make $3,000 a month. Our daycare just raised rates 15%. That's one five. So I do not feel better off financially this year than I did last year, um, even though I got a raise and, um, you know, the architecture firm that I work at is doing pretty well. But that's basically irrelevant to my financial feelings, which, which all come down to student loan payments starting again. Yes, I would say that I do feel better off financially more so now than a year ago. Prices have come down, particularly in areas like gasoline. We are no longer heading into a recession. Given the repercussions of the pandemic, which was the huge impact on our economy from loss of jobs to supply chain issues worldwide, and compared to other countries, I firmly believe I am better off than what we could have been. The boots on the ground experience is, is that we all watched inflation soar as high as 9% last year. And, and then we're supposed to feel like it being only 3% is good news. That's like, no, Americans want to see prices go down because we're paying for these increased prices. For sure, what would make me feel better about my financial future would be seeing costs stabilize. If I have a job and I'm getting more money, that would equate to my not having to make these decisions about what to buy, what not to buy, that would make a difference. But the cost of living has never kept up with the raises that companies pay. My household is pretty stressed about our financial future. The whole combination of everything is just really stressful. We're not really sure what's gonna happen. I'm already working two jobs, so I will just, I guess we'll just see what happens. That was Aaron, Cassandra, Sarah, Paul, Magnus, Pat, Michelle, Patrick, and Molly from Maryland, Wisconsin, California, Florida, New York, Washington State, and Connecticut. Now, feelings are feelings, right? Feelings are not facts. But all facts are not the same. Some are discreet, describing a very specific point in time. Others can be more longitudinal, accreting their authority over a much longer period of time. In other words, contradicting facts can be simultaneously true, and people can have a lot of contradicting feelings about those facts. An immortal case in point, the U.S. economy. The latest numbers read, individual points on the great curve of time are really good. The labor market is strong, wages are up for lower-wage workers, prices have cooled off a bit, and inflation is down. Longer term, though, read decades, wages have sorely lagged corporate profits or inflation, prices in some sectors continue to go through the roof, and for the past 40 years, more and more risk for things like health insurance, education, retirement have been heaped on individuals. And then there's the pandemic. 
It pulled the rug out from under just about everyone. And right when folks might be feeling like they're about to fully stand up, key parts of pandemic relief are coming to an end. So maybe it's not such a surprise that despite the latest monthly economic indicators, only 13 percent of Americans recently surveyed in a YouGov poll feel like they're better off this year than last year. And that dismal number is not unique to one political party or one income bracket. Americans don't feel great about their financial prospects across all political identifications and income, according to that YouGov poll. For people making $100,000 or more, only 21% said they were better off this year than last. So today, we're going to scrutinize both fact and feeling to understand better what Americans are trying to say when they say they're pessimistic about their financial present and future. And to do that, Michelle Singletary is with us. She's personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. She has a nationally syndicated column, The Color of Money, read across the country. And her latest book is What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide. And other than those grade A accolades, she's also one of On Point's money ladies. Hello there, Michelle. Hi. hi. Good to be back. It's that last title that I, I personally love the most. No offense to the Washington Post, but so glad you're back with us. Now, as I mentioned, we'd usually call this a money ladies segment, right? Um, with Michelle and for the folks who listen regularly with Rana, that's Rana Faruhar, uh, but she couldn't join us today. So we've got a terrific pinch hitter with us. Heather Long. She's an economic columnist also at the Washington Post. Hello there, Heather. Hi, good to be here. Always good to fill in for the great Rana. <laughs> I hope you're feeling, you know, in good company being now part of our our stead of money ladies here. I'll take it. I need some survival tips too, Michelle. <laughs> Don't <so>. we all? <laughs> okay, so let me get straight to it. Uh, and again, just jump in whoever, but Michelle, I'm just going to start with you. Um when we uh, sent you that information about that YouGov poll, um, and, you know, it's not Gallup, but it, but it's still something I think significant about the seemingly across-the-board pessimism that people have about their own individual finances right now, what was your first reaction to it? I, you know, I think what you said at the top of the show is accurate. Feelings are not facts, but the, but feelings are real. And and there's really two things going on. There's the overall inflation, which is down significantly. And then there's core inflation, those things that really hit home, like rent, car prices, auto insurance. And so it's a tale of two cities, if you were, two issues. You know, the larger picture is we are better. We, I mean, you can't go from 9%, um, you know, to just over 9% to just over 3% and think that things are not better. But when you dig deeper, lots of people were struggling even before the pandemic and when inflation went um, up. And so they still feel crushed by a lot of financial obligations. And when you're in the middle of the storm, even as it's passing, you still feel the effect of that storm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Heather, before I turn to you, I actually want to get a voice of a listener in here who who's like who says well basically all things considered things are good this is paul liebarger from denver colorado given the repercussions of the pandemic which was a huge impact on our economy from loss of jobs to supply chain issues worldwide and compared to other countries i firmly believe i am better off than what we could have been 
I think those Americans who expect to be better off are expecting too much given the residual effects of what the world has gone through. Okay, Heather, so first of all, if Paul were with us, I'd be like, in comparison to which other countries do you mean? <laughs> but also, I mean, he's saying he's questioning people's expectations of, of what life should be now. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really fascinating comment. I mean, on some level, he's 100% right that uh, I was writing those stories in 2020 when there was a real fear that we could end up in another Great Depression like the 1930s, and we avoided that. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we've got more people working than we've had uh, in many ways in 20 years. Uh, so, so in some, on a lot of levels, things are better, way better than anybody would have expected two or three years ago, given what we've all been through. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, and I think you're, the clips that you played to start the show really hit on this, is yes, inflation, as Michelle was talking about, 9% last summer, down to 3%. But when we are talking about those numbers, we're talking about the growth in prices. Mm -hmm. Prices are still growing. And, um, you know, you take something like home prices, which are so visible as, as you're driving around town or looking at those websites for maybe your dream home. Could you afford it? You know, in, in the start of the pandemic, the um, typical home price in America was $280,000. Today, it's over 400000 What? So Is that, me Is that like that, a median home price across yes, the country? Yes, the median home price. So it's price. almost doubled? I mean, well, not quite doubled, but you know, it's up massively. And people feel that. And that's before we even talk about the mortgage rates you know, soaring through the roof. And so I think there's something real here in the sense, and I try to acknowledge that, like Michelle was saying, these feelings are real. There is a real psychological toll. Yes, on paper and in fact, incomes now on average are growing faster than inflation. And that's mm. really a positive and people are starting to see that and feel it. But the prices are still really high across the board. Okay, so let's go to Frederick, Maryland, where On Point listener Molly Carson had this to say. My answer is a resounding no. Last year at this time, there was some hope that we might have student loan forgiveness. We were also still in the blush of pandemic relief funding where I got money for having children. That tremendously helped in my household as my kids get older, the more activities they have. And my family makes a very good income, and yet I definitely feel less able to buy the things I need to buy this year than I did last year. I think inflation certainly is playing a part, um, as well as, you know, the lack of these exciting and I think comparatively small investments in families that we saw during the pandemic and with that hope of student loan debt relief. So in all those ways, I'm disappointed and definitely in a more precarious financial situation this year than last year. Now, Michelle, we just got a minute before our first break, but I want to start us talking about what Molly just said there. The loss of certain government supports, namely have that student loan relief, that's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, it is. And, you know, really quickly, if you're struggling, the, the Department of Education, the Biden White House has a plan in place to help with that. Um, they've got a new uh, debt repayment plan that will allow families who are struggling to pay, in some cases, zero um, dollars per month. Zero dollars per month. Okay. But then for those who don't? 
So, you know, even if you if you've got uh, federal loans and you apply for one of the income based repayment uh, plans, it will it should fit in your budget. But if you listen to what Molly said, really listen, it's the extra stuff that they don't have money for. So they're not worse off. They just can't do more of what they want to do, not necessarily what they need to do. Mm. Well, Michelle Singletary and Heather Long are with us today. We're talking about why, at least according to one recent poll, Americans across the board are feeling pretty pessimistic about their current and even future individual financial lives. A lot more to talk about when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty and Magnus Westergren. He lives in New York City. He answered our question that we put out last week about, do you feel better off financially this year than you did last year? A lot of people said no, including Magnus, who works uh, at an architectural firm who he says is actually doing well this year. He even got a raise. But nevertheless, he still feels financially worse off because of those oncoming student loan payments. After the student loan payments went on pause during the pandemic, you know, all the money that I saved, um, I spent on buying myself an apartment. So now I have a mortgage and I have a wonderful apartment in the city that I love. But with student loan payments starting, um, my payment is going to be probably somewhere around 1500 to $2,000 a month, um, which is going to be a severe challenge to pay um, now that I have a mortgage to pay as well. So... Yeah, that's why I am very much fearing for my financial future this year. Okay, Heather Long, Michelle told us a little bit about her thoughts regarding those student loan payments. How does this, how do you, how do you analyze this moment? Because we heard this over and over again from people who were like, I was really glad not to have those payments. And now I feel like I'm going to go underwater because of them. It's real. You're going to have, people are going to have to cut back on their budgets. No doubt about it. And Michelle was getting at that. She's been hammering on that point. You got to get rid of the extras and that's not fun. I'll just throw out another point, not to be really doom and gloomy, but what scares me the most looking at the economic data lately 
is if you look at what happened this summer, people were spending like it was boom time. They were spending double the amount of income growth. So that means they were either spending down their savings, like Magnus was describing, or they were using credit cards or using one of those Karma or other apps you can take a short-term loan out from. And that's just not sustainable, even if you don't have student loan payments that are about to restart and other supports that are coming off. Somebody mentioned uh, the child payments, for example, which are, are long gone now. So I, I think that to me is is really the one worrying thing. The U.S. economy is driven by consumption and consumer spending. And right now, people are overspending from with money they don't have. <laughs> okay. Heather and Michelle, oh, so many thoughts, because I think you just got right to the heart of the matter. There's so many contradictions here. First of all, as Heather just said, the U.S. economy is measured by consumption. It's also driven by things like, you know, consumer optimism, and, et, et cetera. And yet, I'm hearing from both of you saying people were spending like it was like 1999, and they shouldn't, and they shouldn't <laughs> have. I mean, help, help me square that contradiction, Michelle. Well, okay. So listen to the last call. And what I'm going to say is not going to be popular. And please don't send me no hate mail. I'm telling you, do not do it. You're going to be deleted right away. You get enough as it is, I'm sure. (laughs) I get enough as it is, as a black woman and a woman. So listen to what the, the caller said. I went and bought a place. But he went and bought a place without considering that at some point those loans were going to kick in. And so if I had been advising him, I would have created a budget including that student loan, that would have probably told that person, it's not time for you to buy it right now, that you might need to still rent or you might need to rent and get a roommate until you figure out how to make sure that those payments, those student loan payments can fit in your budget in addition to a home payment. So is it the fact that the loans are kicking in or this person didn't do their due diligence in terms of making sure that everything that they're responsible for is in their budget? Listen, folks, you borrowed this money to go to school and there are certainly some people who absolutely deserve a break. You know, their wages aren't kept up. They they had these promises of these great jobs when they finished college, or maybe they didn't finish college. But there are a lot of people out there doing this pause that went to do some things, not considering that that responsibility is going to kick in at some point. And so that's, I mean, that's the tough love. You can't do it all. So you've got to look at your budget. It's it's not a bad thing. And you got to let that budget dictate where you're going. It's just like when you're in a car and this GPS and you plug in the coordinates, you know, you use that to help you get to where you're going. That's your budget. And that person didn't look at that. Even with the promise of loan forgiveness, it was not going to be enough to erase it for a lot of people. Some, yes, but not all. Mm -hmm. Not $10,000 or $20,000. And so, you know, and I, I really want people to be honest with themselves. Is it that you're worse off or that you're trying to do too much with money that you don't have? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Heather, I, I want to uh, fully disclose that I am a true blue believer in Michelle's gospel of frugality <laughs> and, 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 and budgeting. No, seriously, like I grew up in a family where one of the like constant mantras was do not spend more than you earn. Okay. That was like driv- drilled into me since I was two. And so Michelle is a, a spiritual guide here for, for me. But what I'm going to ask and I do want to hear from both of you on this, is that, look, let's be honest, for us here on a radio show, it's, don't get mad at me, Michelle, okay. Um, <laughs> it's kind of easy for us to tut-tut 
right? Like, you make a budget. Presume that your student loan payments were going to have to come back eventually. Maybe this isn't the best time to buy a house. I hear everything that Michelle says about that. But there's an undercurrent of our analysis between the three of us here that presumes that people should give up on what they think a successful American life should be. And I don't know. I don't think people should give up on that. I mean, Heather, you talked about, you know, um, people, you know, trying to achieve their their dream homes uh, in this in this economic period or going to Taylor Swift concerts, doing things that they want to do rather than what they need to do. I mean, I don't think we should define American life universally, except for the richest of us, as a you know, prolonged or perhaps permanent austerity period. I mean, why shouldn't people go to Taylor Swift concerts to give themselves a bit of joy? And also, like, that should be a normal part of life, shouldn't it, Heather? Very fair, Magna. It's uh, And I'll just say I disagree a little bit, just a tiny bit with Michelle on this one. I would... Um... I would say it, it was a great time. When those mortgage rates were low, it was a great time to buy a house. And if he can find a way, maybe getting a roommate or something creative to make it through the next few years until hopefully those student loan payments go away, that's going to be a really good financial investment probably to own a property in New York City and to get in while those mortgage rates were low. So we don't know the full budget picture, but I'm more I'm more optimistic for Mr. Magnus um, than maybe my, my colleague. I think you're Right. Uh, you know, I would also throw out another thing that's important to remember in the last three years, and that is the great reassessment of work. You know, so mm-hmm. many people were able to quit a job or they got laid off and then find a career and, and get on a, a career ladder and job satisfaction is the highest we've seen and ever recorded as they started in the 80s. We're looking at these surveys of job satisfaction. So yes, people are saying maybe their finances and they're not feeling better on their finance side. But if you look at job satisfaction, people are much happier. They have more flexibility. Some can work from home. Some have Fridays off. You know, even people working in the hospitality sector find it a lot easier to plan out their schedule than they did pre-pandemic. And that they get a lot higher pay and better benefits. And so I think when you look kind of holistically at where we are as a nation in the past three years, it's not just about consumption and you know the budget lines that a lot of people have been able to trade to a up, I would argue, trade up to a better lifestyle overall. Mm-hmm. Okay, Michelle, I'm going to turn back to you here on this. And I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to drive at this over and over again, because to me, this is the thing that I don't think we we in the media talk honestly enough about, and that is I totally understand having to tighten your belt for a certain amount of time. Everyone should have the wherewithal to do that, to get through you know rough times. But I think the truth is, is that the pandemic exposed how, well, most Americans, except the wealthiest, essentially, you know, you know that fact better than anyone, Michelle, that like yeah. this tiny number of Americans had $500 in cash to for uh, emergency right. purposes and everyone else basically didn't. So it's like, wait a minute, this American life that I, I was supposed to have or that even I'm supposed to be able to give my children, uh, it hasn't really existed for decades. And now maybe we're in a situation where it may never come back for huge numbers of people. And I think... Th- the settling in of that reality or possible reality is what's driving some of this pessimism that we're talking about this hour. And I really, and it's not just I sympathize, I completely understand why Americans right. might feel that way, even if they're earning $100,000 a year. Right. 
So, you know, I run the spectrum of someone who's lived a life where um, I had to go live with my grandmother Mm because my parents abandoned us. And my grandmother never made more than like $13,000 a year. And so raising five grandchildren, husband who's an alcoholic, didn't bring his paycheck home. So listen, I've been there. I've walked there. You know, I I actually know actual. I'm speaking from some sort of high point where I've made this great salary all my life and I don't know what your life is like. I absolutely know what it's like to open a refrigerator and not have any food in there. But what I'm saying is, and, you know, I love that we disagree, that, that, that uh, Magnus, you know, I'm not saying don't go for your dream, but it has to be realistic. So, okay, so let's say you're going to take advantage and buy a property, but did you consider maybe I need to get a roommate while I'm going to do that? I can't get a one-bedroom place because even if interest rates are lower at that time, it doesn't matter. If you can't pay that mortgage, it doesn't matter if that interest rate is 3% or 7%. Um, and so, you know, there's some things in life that you're not going to be able to do. It's not your fault. We don't have a good safety net for folks. College costs too much. But that doesn't mean on an individual level, you can't make the kind of decisions that will make it worse for yourself. Did I, when I was a hungry child, want more? Certainly. But I, my grandmother knew that she could only do but so much with the income that she had. And so you've got to tamper your expectations for where you are in life until you can get into a better position. It makes no sense for us to tell people to go out, hey, you know what? Life is sucks. Why don't you go ahead and go to that concert that you can't afford? Because, you know, whatever. You know, and 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 on that point, I don't have a problem with paying for Taylor Swift tickets at whatever that crazy price was, because <laughs> yeah. that's not the difference between you buying a house, you know, and paying your rent. But I am concerned about the big ticket stuff that does make a difference. So I don't care that you buy that coffee every day, but I do need you to to look at the rest of your budget and maybe not take your lunch or maybe not go on a, you know, two or $3,000 vacation because you figure, you know, well, I deserve this. No, I'm not going to co-sign for that. And you shouldn't either. And this is coming from someone who's not been, you know, where she is now. And I understand the, the want and need to have more. Mm-hmm. Michelle, this is why I love having you on. Seriously. Reality <laughs> check always, okay? So yeah. even even when I don't actually disagree with you, but I'm trying to give voice to what I think a lot of people might be feeling. So let's actually listen to some more um, folks who uh, who called in and let us know uh, let us know about how they're feeling. Some of them definitely said they feel better off this year, and their reasons were uh, quite varied. Here's Rich Berg of Washington State. He also feels financially better this year than last. For a few reasons. One is that Social Security benefit payments went up substantially due to inflation. And the next reason is that bond rates, treasury bond rates, are substantially higher, which provide a stable rate of return for our retirement savings. And I also am encouraged that the Biden administration is taking serious action to mitigate climate change, which I feel will affect our financial future. Okay, so here is also Jim Remy of Buffalo, New York. Unlike uh, Rich, Jim doesn't feel better off financially this year than last. And I think that's because of inflation, and I think that's also due to the, the nation's large debt of $31.5 trillion. I also believe the Federal Reserve is responsible for some of the mess that this country is in as well. So, no, I do not feel as as good financially as I have in the past. 
Okay, Heather. So ri- Jim there raising uh, two of the the shibboleths of, I guess, let's call them deficit hawks here. Um, he's talking about that large debt of $31.5 trillion, And he's also pointing at the Fed, saying you're responsible here for how people feel. Your, your thoughts? Uh, you hear this a lot, so I'm glad it came up on the program. That um, uh, I mean, look, everybody knows that the acrimony in this country is up, the partisanship. The We went through a situation where we got pretty darn close to the United States defaulting on its debt payments when we were back in May, uh, heading into June, and we had to watch Congress and the White House try to come to some last-minute deal uh, to avert a really massive crisis. And thank goodness they came together and they did it and they passed it just just in time. But there's a lot of close calls. Obviously, that led to a debt downgrade of this nation by mm-hmm. another of the big by by um you know, another of the big credit rating agencies in August. And so I think he's on to something. And and that's definitely part of the reason that we've just seen sentiment across the board about just about everything fall starting around 2016, and it really hasn't rebounded a ton. Um, the Fed is is an interesting one. I covered the Federal Reserve for the Washington Post for a few years, and and you know continue to be uh, watch it very closely. Let me say this: there is no doubt, and even there's economic research that shows the Federal Reserve played a pretty big role in making inequality worse in this country. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is what the prior caller to him said, which is uh, a lot of the Fed's actions really juiced the stock market. Yeah. From, you you do sound like Rana. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I'll channel that. Um, So there's something to that. There's something to that. Now, I will say, I think they've done a pretty decent job in the last several years of helping the world not end up in another Great Depression in 2020. The Fed was very fast to act and they've done a halfway decent job. They were a little slow to get going, but a halfway decent job of trying to bring inflation down without tanking the economy. We are not sitting here in a recession Mm, today, which a lot of people a year ago would have bet you money we would be in a recession right now. Okay. So Michelle, let me just quickly turn back to you on that because um, I think Heather put it the right way. A lot of people were thinking that a recession was going to land, um, but it didn't. So how much of this is you know, people seeing whatever's covered on their radio show or television show of choice and channeling that back into how they feel ab- about themselves? Oh, absolutely. I mean, not you, not us at the Post, but (laughs) not Heather. But I think there is a, I mean, listen, that's the nature of business. You hype up the thing that uh, people fear because they're talking about it. So it's not like you didn't make it happen. We know people are fearful. Um, The pandemic uh, shut things down. People lost their jobs. You know, there was stimulus money out there because, you know, people needed it. Um, And so there's all this like, what are we happening? What's going on? Oh, my gosh. Um, and people feed into that. Um, and rightfully so. There, There is a lot of different segments in this country. People struggling. They were struggling before the pandemic. They're struggling now. They're, you know, people in the middle were just hanging on. And then, you know, the one percenters is just taking it all, most of it. Um, and all of that feeds into people's fear and have this sense that things are not better for themselves. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Michelle Singletary and Heather Long are with us today. We're talking about trying to understand really what's beneath some pretty dour numbers when it comes to how optimistic people feel, Americans feel about their own financial lives now in comparison to last year. So we'll have more in just a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Michelle Singletary is with us. She is, of course, the personal finance columnist for The Washington Post, also nationally syndicated. Her column, The Color of Money, is read in newspapers across the country. She's also author of What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide. And, of course, Michelle is also one of our original money ladies. And bringing on into the money ladies fold, we're bringing Heather Long on today. She's an economic columnist, columnist also at... The Washington Post. And we're trying to think through what's really driving some pretty dismal numbers, uh, as revealed in a recent YouGov poll, about how Americans feel about their financial lives now in comparison to last year. In a nutshell, they don't feel very good about it at all. Um, And in fact, Ray Russell tells us on Facebook, it's not that people are pessimistic. It's the prices for grocery and consumer goods plus sky-high interest rates. We talked about that um, a couple of minutes ago. Ray says, you can't put lipstick on a pig. And Jason Munch says, gosh, he just really nails it with a very precise question. Economy is doing better for who? Okay, so that's some of our online uh, commentary from listeners. Let's listen to Rosemary Malfi. She lives in Salem, Massachusetts. And it's interesting because she told us she feels fortunate that her family is more stable this year in comparison to last year. But nevertheless, they're not comfortable because they're feeling anxious about their future. I think the housing market is another piece of it. You know, I think that really probably varies a lot depending on where in the country you're living. You know, lots of people in my neighborhood say, you know, if we were trying to buy a house now, we couldn't afford to live in our own neighborhood. So I think there's this sense of, lacking options and not having choice, right? If you wanted to move or if you needed to move, you know, where there's the sense of like, well, where would I, where would I go and how could I even stay in my own community? Again, that's Rosemary Malfi in Massachusetts. Let's swing down to Florida. That's where Pat Gavin lives. He's in Fort Lauderdale. He feels quite differently. He says he's better off now than last year. Prices have come down, particularly in areas like gasoline. Certain commodities are still high and will likely remain high, but we are no longer heading into a recession. And I think as that settles in, 
and we stop raising interest rates, we're going to see an, an even better shift in the, the economy and in the financial market and see more people realizing that we are much better off. So, Pat, they're saying, hold fast, everyone. Better times are coming. But over in Seattle, Washington, Cassandra Conyers says she does not feel better off financially this year than last year because, yes, she feels like she is still paying more for things like gas, food, medical appointments, and also non-essential things like streaming services. But the cost of living has never kept up with the raises that companies pay. So I would say that obviously increase in salary, but really what I'd like to see are cost stabilizing so that I would feel like if I figure out how to spend my money wisely now, um, I don't have to go through this catechism the next year and the next year and the next year. Okay, Heather, so a lot of listeners are looking forward. And in fact, even though Cassandra and Paul, uh, Pat, I should say, have different senses of how they're financial lives are now. Both of them basically said, well, if costs can stabilize in the future, things will be better. Uh, What would it take to stabilize costs? Yes, uh, the White House is certainly hoping that that's exactly what happens and that uh, there's a lot more pats out there in the world. Um, Look, it we're in a situation finally, finally, it's it started to transition this spring, April, May, June, where incomes are rising faster than inflation. And over time, uh, that will get to a scenario where people will be able to buy more than they are able to afford and buy today. But how long does it take to really get you back to that trajectory, say, pre-pandemic and the feelings you had pre-pandemic? Uh, unfortunately, and that could take years, which is not very settling thought. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of good trends in the sense that gas prices, okay, they're up a little bit this summer, as we always see at the end of a summer, but you know they're about where they were a year ago. We're certainly well below those $5 craziness than June of 2022 that we saw. Um, anyone who's been and bought eggs recently knows <laughs> that a lot of grocery prices are a lot better uh, in many cases. So it's um, you know across the board, a lot of things other than housing and cars, and unfortunately, those are the big ones for many people's budgets, are starting to stabilize, if not come down a little bit. You've seen things like airfares and hotel costs starting to creep down a little bit, but certainly a long way to go to get anything back to what people felt. Creep down from absurd. (laughs) Yes, there you go. (laughs) You're writing the headline better than me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not as absurd as it was last year. Um, but Heather, there's one other thing, speaking of um, in, sort of uh, interesting ways to describe what's going on. there, Paul, I believe there was a column that you wrote um, or um, some at some point in time you wrote something about calling the economy uh, or people's perception thereof as a vibe session rather than yeah. a recession, a vibe session. What did you mean by that? Well, certainly, it's just what we've been talking about this whole hour, that even though many of the actual economic facts and data points look pretty darn good right now, uh, people rate this experience terribly. You know, not quite a few people at the beginning of the summer thought we were in a recession, which we couldn't have been further from in a lot of ways. So uh, what I do think is interesting is what you were just hitting at. If you look at um, the ec- what economists, what the 
nerds look at, the, like things like the University of Min- Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey or the Conference Board Consumer Sentiment, there's a real divergence between how people rate the economy right now, which they rate pretty good, not great, but let's say like B grade, and what they rate the economy, their expectations for the future. Mm-hmm. And the expectations for the future are what's really low. And that's what tends to pull down sentiment um, when you're asked in like that YouGov poll. And I think you're right. I started noticing this around the 2016 election, that you would be interviewing someone in suburban Philadelphia in a beautiful home, and they were clearly very well off. And you'd say, you know, why are you voting for Donald Trump? And they would say, well, I'm just really fearful about my future and my children's future. You know, yeah. there was this kind of disconnect between the reality of what they were living today and what they sort of forecast was coming, this very pessimistic forecast. I- and I don't know how we change that. Um, it's it's um, the anxiety levels, as you were mentioning, are just really high right now. Yeah. I mean, I think we changed. And first of all, I agree completely. I don't think we can brush that sentiment aside. I think it's a core feeling that people have about their lives and the lives of you know their children and, and the country as a whole. But as we've been hearing from all sorts of listeners today, the word stability, stability, stability seems to be coming up a lot. Like people want to have a sense of greater stability in their lives now um, and in the future. And Michelle, to that, to that point, I mean, a lot of people are going to continuously have the question, about what, what should I do now in order to at least do what I can to provide myself more stability? And for example, here is Erin um, Mulhern. She's in Deep River, Connecticut. And this is what she told us. My household is pretty stressed about our financial future. Pre-pandemic, we were paying $35,000 a year in childcare expenses in addition to student loan payments. And during that time, we had to use a lot of credit cards we just we didn't have a choice because our income just didn't meet what we were able to live off of and i know people always say just live off of what you can afford but this state is very expensive and even being at the bare minimum of what you were what you can live on we still weren't able to just buy groceries for our family for the week without using credit cards so one of the silver linings of the pandemic for us is that the the student loan payments were paused and then all the daycares around us were closed. So we, we automatically started saving a bunch of money and all of that money we dumped back into our credit cards. So we went from having five credit cards of about $60,000 total in debt to one credit card with $20,000. Now, Michelle, I feel like Erin wow. reads your column because she, mm-hmm. you know, she's she paid down that debt, that credit card debt by a whopping amount. Um yeah. She, she also told us, though, that things are still kind of iffy for her and her family. And again, the child care and the student loan issue um, is sort of looming for her. So what, what could someone like Erin, who has done the right things over the past couple of years, do now to hope, hopefully give her more stability? Ooh, that's a big one. <laughs> I, I always could, give you the big I, ones, Oh, Michelle. my <laughs> Lord. I tell you, why ain't that with the Heather? <laughs> okay, well, well um, you, no, can, no, gen- you can generalize it, though, because I think Erin's uh, yeah. situation is pretty common. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one for me because, you know, I'm not going to, you know— 
wag my finger and I'm not really wagging my finger at anyone. I'm just stating the, the obvious, the reality is that what's happening to her, the solution isn't for me to tell her to budget better. The solution is more affordable childcare. Mm-hmm. The solution is more affordable um, education opportunities for people. And so those are the policies that we have to put in place that will help people like Aaron. There's only so much cutting that you can do for a lot of people. And in America, we want our kids to go to college because we know that that is one of the major pathways to a middle income stable um, lifestyle. But to do that, you've got to take on a lot of debt for some of the schools that that folks go to. Um, and so I sort of back it out and take it away from Erin because it sounds like she's doing all that they can. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I will say to people who are listening to her who are not there yet, you know, think about like right now we're about to send a whole bunch of kids off to college. They're starting and maybe some of those people shouldn't be where they are. They should have been maybe at a community college for two years and then transfer the four years. They're living on campus. Maybe they should be living at home. You know, um, you know those kinds of things, you know, um, and, and just we should vote for the people who are going to put into place safety nets to help families like Aaron. You know, we talk about the cost of daycare and how horrible it is, but think about the people on the other end, those people who, the reason why daycare is so expensive and daycares are closing down is because people who are taking care of your kids aren't making enough money to take care of your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can't blame the centers because they can't get folks because you can't live it. And and I think Cassandra, you know, one of the listeners before talked about, you know, there's been wage growth, but it was stagnant and terrible before that. And so people are just catching up to what should have been in place already. And, I'm, and what can we do? We need to stop grousing about the fact that a restaurant is charging an extra $5 so they can pay the people in the back. You know, it, you know, we, all of us are in this together. And so I've become a better tipper. I have become a better use of using people in my community businesses and things like that. And I look at prices differently now. I mean, a lot of the people who are grousing, you can afford a little bit more. We can't have all these cheap products and cheap services and not think about the people on the other back end of that. Mm-hmm. And I just, the Post just had a great story about why furniture costs so uh, why furniture doesn't last us so long because it's so cheaply made. Why is it so cheaply made? Because we don't want to pay the people in the factories that are making it so that the, the, the businesses have to find a cheaper way to make cheaper stuff that fall apart that we have to then replace. And so we all have to pay a part in this, right? We may have to pay a little bit more. And we also have to be a little bit more grateful for what we have. Totally. And not once. So much that more means, you know, we want to travel and do all this stuff, but those people who are serving us can't make enough to service us on those cruises and those those vacation spots that we go to. So we... Listen, y'all, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm very emotional about this because I've been at every stage that we're talking about. And now that I have more, I can reflect back and I try to I try to position my life and the things that I do to help. I tip better. I don't grouse about that. I, you know, I, I sent my kids to affordable schools. We could have paid more, but it would have stretched us. So they went to state schools. All three of my 20 year olds are living at home because it so costs so much, but that allows them to save and make better decisions. And so as we talk about how we fear things, really assess, is the fear legitimate? If it is, 
we got to do something yes. better with policies. But if it's not, be a little bit more grateful for what you have. That's because there's it. a lot of people who don't have food on the table and can't afford the place that they're living. That's it. So, uh, you know, beyond Michelle's excellent um, advice on the nitty gritty of personal finance, the one of the reasons why I love hearing from you the most, Michelle, is because, as you've said today, you've lived the life and are and still and also still living the life of people who come to you for for advice. And let's let's be honest, I'm not you know, I'm not casting aspersions uh, in uh, Heather's way or my way, but maybe I should to my myself. But but I think in the media, I'll just say it. I think the media is non totally non-representative of most of American lives. Right. Um, and so when we talk about the economy, we do it in the way that economists do. Right. We're like, oh, well, there's this relative drop in in the inflation rate. Well, yeah, great. Like it went down from nine percent to almost under four. That that's wonderful as a relative drop. But Americans are still looking at the absolute costs that that they're paying. Right. And they're still looking at um, the absolute future costs they're going to have to pay. Or they're saying, okay, unemployment is like really low right now. Awesome. But the job, those 126,000 jobs or whatever they're created last month, I got one of them, but it doesn't pay the bills. That's exactly. the reality, right? Exactly. So, and what I love about what you do with this program with the money ladies, and I'm, I hope Heather is part of the rotation, is that we need both, right? What Heather is saying, the macro and what she, you know, the fact that, you know, when the Fed policy made, you know, the stock market grow, but who who did it grow for? I mean, uh, Pat said, who's benefiting? Well, lots of wealthy people are benefiting. So we need both perspectives, Heather's and mine, mm-hmm. and together and yours, we can have a conversation that isn't um, uh, tinged with such hatred and despise because we need Republicans and Democrats and independents and and we need all of us to work together to have an economy that is going to be everywhere, right? There's going to be people who have a lot and people who don't have, but we do want to strive to have an America where at least you have a decent living and a decent place to live. Michelle, forgive me from taking it back from you, but Heather is still there. (laughs) And you're going to get the last 30 seconds today, Heather. You're definitely part of the Money Ladies rotation. Well, thanks for having me on. I just throw out, I think we didn't get political and I don't normally like to, but I think one of the interesting things about Bidenomics is the president's team really focused on this industrial policy. And what didn't get enacted was universal pre-K, you know, daycare subsidies, free community college, trade parental leave, those things that would have been felt by a lot of these callers today. Well, maybe we'll have a discussion about that in the near future. I'm sure we will. Heather Long, economic columnist at The Washington Post, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. And Michelle Singletary. Budget wisely. (laughs) And Michelle Singletary, thank you as always. This is On Point.